Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, we continue our 90th anniversary celebration by listening to a classic program. Pastor Larry Spargimino will be sharing his verse-by-verse teaching on the book of Revelation. We have two very special conferences coming up as well. This Saturday and Sunday at the Cross Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Southwest Radio Ministries will present our Clarity to the Chaos Conference. Nationally known speakers will be there to help make sense of all the nonsense that's around us. Greg Patton, Larry Stamm, Micah Van Huss, and Dr. Lonnie Shipman are just a few of the speakers that will be there. May 5th and 6th, we'll be in Wichita, Kansas. Rob Lindstead and Michael Hoggard will join the lineup of speakers ready to reveal secrets of the Vatican and explore the implications of AI and the platform of the Antichrist. For a complete listing of speakers, topics, and to register, visit the events page of our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com and click on Events. For those who read and study the book of Revelation, this marvelous book of prophecy, there's no need to be uncertain about the future. Dr. Larry Spargimino has done a masterful study of this important book about things to come. In 1994, Pastor Larry presented five radio programs and debuted his study guide commentary on the book of Revelation titled, No Uncertain Future. Today, we have the privilege of listening in on part of that presentation. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very exciting and wonderful book. Lord willing, we will have five messages on five major topics from the book. Today I'll speak about the seven churches, and then we'll follow programs dealing with the seals, trumpets, vials, and then lastly, the second coming and millennial kingdom. I hope that this will be a time when, first, we will grow in our love for and devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and secondly, that it will be a time for us to increase in our knowledge of God's blessed Word. If at all possible, it would be profitable for you to have a Bible handy so that you can look up these scriptures. Of course, if you are driving, please don't look up any scriptures, just listen. Today we will be thinking about the seven churches of the Revelation. They are found in chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 provide us with seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, or as it is known today, Turkey. These were seven literal churches, actual congregations of believers that were in existence at the end of the first century A.D. How do we know that these were literal churches? Primarily from the fact that there are matters of local details mentioned. For example... Revelation 2.9 tells us that in the church at Smyrna, there were some who claimed to be Jews, but who were not. Revelation 2.20 gives us a particular detail about the church at Thyatira. There was a woman there by the name of Jezebel. She considered herself a prophetess, and she was leading many astray. So there is no doubt that these seven churches were seven local congregations that were in existence during the time in which John was inspired to write the book of Revelation. 
But there is also a prophetic application that can be discovered from these churches. They each represent seven distinct phases of Christian history from the first century to the rapture of the church. In other words, they describe seven eras of church history from about A.D. 90 to the return of Jesus Christ. They predict the church's history from John's time to the end of the church age. The first church mentioned, the church at Ephesus, is descriptive of what will happen to the church at the end of the apostolic age. It will be characterized by the loss of its first love. The next church, the church at Pergamos, describes the next period of church history. It is the period of the church under the favor of imperial Rome. We don't have time to compare each church with its respective era in church history. But the seventh and last church, the church at Laodicea, bears special mention in this regard. The church at Laodicea was the lukewarm church. It corresponds perfectly to the times in which we are living. I believe that we are living in the Laodicean age. This is the age of lukewarm churches. The church, by and large, has lost its love for Christ, its zeal, and its fervency. The church today is self-sufficient and self-satisfied. Revelation 3.17 describes it quite well. Because thou sayest that I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Friends, that's a pretty accurate description of the church today. Prosperous in a material sense, but the church does not know that it is wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, the church at Laodicea is the seventh church that is terribly significant. There is no eighth church, no ninth church. Seven is the last. The very next item on the prophetic calendar is the rapture. Now, remember, the number seven has great significance in the Bible. Revelation 10, verse 7 tells us that when the voice of the seventh angel shall begin to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. Notice the connection between seven and completion. Revelation 16, verse 17, tells us that when the seventh angel poured out his vial, there was a great voice from the throne saying, It is done, or it is finished. And remember that the Laodicean church is the seventh church, and that the number seven is the number of completion and fulfillment. Friends, we are in the last period of the church's history. I hope that you are ready for the return of the Lord. He is coming very soon. I hope and pray that you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that you have assurance of eternal life. So much then for these preliminary comments about the seven churches. Let's look at each church briefly. The first church is the church at Ephesus, and it is found in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. The saints at Ephesus were commended by the Lord for their hard work and for their intolerance of evil. Verse 2 says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. They were intolerant of evil, and that's good. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue, though many liberals think it is. In this day of rampant false doctrine, New Age mysticism, and the multiplication of cults, Christians need to be intolerant of false teaching. The teaching that claims the mind will claim the heart. If false teaching claims the mind, one's practice and behavior will be unacceptable by biblical standards. 
So the church at Ephesus was remarkable in many respects. However, their love for Christ had waned. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Doctrinal purity and hard work must never be a substitute for love for God. Now, I know some churches that are as straight as a gun barrel when it comes to doctrine, but just as empty when it comes to love for Christ. It is not an either-or matter. It is both and. In chapter 2, verse 5, the Lord gives this counsel. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Here we have what I like to call the backslider's three R's, remember, repent, and resume, or do the first works. The second church addressed by the Lord is the church at Smyrna. We find that in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the suffering church. There are no words of rebuke for this church. This is also true of the church at Philadelphia found in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. The city of Smyrna was the center for emperor worship in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. In AD 23, the Roman Senate authorized Smyrna to build a temple in honor of Tiberius. Under the rule of Emperor Domitian, who was on the throne when John penned Revelation, emperor worship was compulsory. Every citizen was required to burn incense on the altar of this temple and say out loud, Caesar is Lord. Those citizens who complied were given an official document certifying this. Those who did not have this document were put to death. The church at Smyrna would face terrible persecution, but Christ knows the suffering of his people. He knows our griefs and sorrows. In verse 9 he says, I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. The word poverty here means deep poverty. These people were really poor. Their poverty had been caused by persecution. Their property had been confiscated, and they were not allowed to carry on business. And the Lord adds these words, But thou art rich. That's interesting, isn't it? Here were poor Christians who were really rich. True riches are not dependent on economics. The Lord encourages these faithful saints by saying in verse 10, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. But friends, the Lord is also truthful. He also says, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Much of the opposition against the church is satanic in origin. The Roman authorities were but instruments in Satan's hands. And here the scripture reminds us of that. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. The Lord continues by addressing this church with these words, Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Since there are no words of rebuke for this church, we might wonder why they were being allowed to suffer. Obviously, this was a good church, a faithful church. How come they were going to have problems? How come they were going to go through tough times? And thinking about that, we need to remember that suffering is not always chastisement. Suffering may on occasion be preventive. God allowed Paul, for example, to suffer his thorn in the flesh to prevent him from becoming proud. Or suffering may be instructional. We can learn a lot when we suffer. In fact, Hebrews 5, verse 8 tells us that the Lord learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The third church that the Lord addresses is the church at Pergamos. 
And we find that church in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The church at Pergamos was a worldly church. From verse 13, we are told that Satan's seat was located in Pergamos. The word seat can be rendered throne. The devil had his throne in the city of Pergamos. What does this mean? Some see this as a reference to the temple of Esculapius, the pagan god of healing. This god's idol was a serpent, and of course the serpent is an emblem of Satan in the Bible. Others identify Satan's throne with the altar of Zeus, which was located at one time in Pergamos. Whatever the precise application, we learn that Satan is not confined to hell. Satan often sets up headquarters in areas given over to false religions. There are many cities today, both large and small, that can bear with biblical warrant of the designation Satan's throne. Satan is real. He is not just a force, the force of evil, but he is a personal being who plots and schemes and plans. He goes about as a roaring lion, as we are told in 1 Peter chapter 5. Each and every Christian needs to learn how to deal with Satan. The fourth church addressed by our Lord is the church at Thyatira. We can give it the title, The Church of Established Idolatry. You can read about this church in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. This letter is the longest of the seven. The Lord had some good things and some bad things to say about this church. The city of Thyatira was known for its manufacture of purple dye. This city is also mentioned in Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. There we are told of the conversion of Lydia under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The gospel may have first come to Thyatira through Lydia's witness. All was not well in this church. The letter addressed to it is one of the severest of all. Interestingly enough, there are at least two good things here not found in any of the other churches. First, this church is commended for its love. Secondly, we are told that their last works were greater than their first works, according to verse 19. Their present state reflected outstanding progress, but there was a major problem in the church. They allowed, quote, that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce God's servants. That's from chapter 2, verse 20. Friends, if you are a pastor or elder or deacon in a local church or even a church member, be very careful about guest speakers. Guard the pulpit. Don't allow any Jezebels to teach and seduce the flock. You have a solemn responsibility before God in this matter. And if you are on a pastor search committee, guard the pulpit. Don't allow God's people to be exposed to heresy. I am very surprised at how careless many churches have become today in this very matter. Jezebel was the Canaanite wife of Israel's king Ahab. This evil woman led Israel astray. In verse 21, the Lord says, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. The Lord gave her an opportunity to repent, but she refused. The Lord's anger was directed not only against her sin, but also against her stubborn refusal to repent of her sin. You see, friends, God respects man's responsibility to choose. Christ did not force Jezebel to repent. Rather, he gave her an opportunity to do so. In verse 24, the Lord now speaks unto the rest in Thyatira, 
as many as have not this doctrine. There were some in the church who had not been led astray by Jezebel. And we learn that no matter how great the temptations, there are those who, by the grace of God, can maintain their integrity and Christian witness. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 tells us about that. It reminds us that the Christian is never in a box. And that's very important for us to realize today. So many times when temptations and error and evil comes upon us, we are afraid that we don't know what to do. We think that there is no way out. We think that we are in a box. But as we learn from the book of Daniel and from other portions of the scripture, God's people are never in a box. Now let's look at the church at Sardis, which is the fifth church. It is mentioned in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It was the dead, formal church. In these letters, the standard format is commendation, complaint, and then words of correction. But in the letter to the church at Sardis, there are no words of commendation. There are only words of complaint and correction. The Lord addresses this church with the words, I know thy works. You see, friends, nothing escapes his notice, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. This church had a good reputation. At one time it had an effective ministry, but now it was dead. It was living off of its reputation. A church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its past, when it is more concerned with forms than with life when it loves its programs more than Jesus Christ. There are a lot of churches that fit into this category. In verse 2 of chapter 3, the Lord exhorts this church and says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain but are ready to die. The Lord counsels that the church strengthen those things which remain. If they were still having services in the morning, they needed to concentrate on improving them. The Lord also says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. They had to hang on to the basics. It's very easy for churches to forget basic Bible truths and get involved in other things. Churches often speak about broadening their ministry, but they often do this at the expense of the basics. Daycare for working mothers should never become a substitute for Bible preaching and evangelism. Though there is no commendation for the church at Sardis, nevertheless, we see that there still was a faithful remnant there. According to verse 4, there were some who had not yet defiled their garments. Thank God for the faithful remnant. Though Elijah thought that he was standing alone, the Lord reminded him that there were still 7,000 others who had not worshipped Baal, according to 1 Kings 19.18. Sometimes the world tries to get us to lower our standards because everybody is doing it. But the fact is, everybody is not doing it. Even at Sardis, there were some who were not doing it. The sixth church that is mentioned is in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and it is the church at Philadelphia. This is the faithful church. As we mentioned earlier, there are no words of condemnation addressed to this church. The city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor has a long history. On several occasions, it was devastated by earthquakes. It was the last city in the area to succumb to Muslim domination. It was finally conquered in 1392. In verse 7, the Lord Jesus identifies himself as he that is holy, 
he that is true. Because Christ is holy and true, he expects us to be holy and true. 1 Peter 1 verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Christians are to be holy even as Jesus Christ is holy. God's goal for us is that we become more like our Lord and Savior. Romans 8.29 tells us that we have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Many times we are confronted with choices. Sometimes they are difficult choices. But I think a valid approach, especially if there is no Bible verse that specifically gives us a directive, is for us to ask, what would Jesus Christ do in this situation? We are to be Christ-like, and His will is to be our supreme standard. There are four wonderful promises given to this faithful church at Philadelphia. First, the Lord guarantees an open door for witness. Secondly, the Lord promises to humble the church's enemies. Thirdly, and that's found in verse 10, the Lord promises deliverance from the hour of trial. It's important that we notice that deliverance is not only from difficulty, but also it is deliverance from that period of time in which the difficulty occurs. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. From is a translation of the Greek preposition ek, which can mean out of. This faithful church will be taken out of that period of tribulation. This suggests a pre-tribulational rapture. The church will be raptured before the great tribulation. This is the divine pattern. Just as God removed Noah and Lot before judgment came, God will also remove the church before judgment comes. I discuss this in greater detail in my book, No Uncertain Future, which is a non-technical study guide commentary on the book of Revelation, published by Hearthstone. The fourth promise given to the church is found in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. The last church mentioned, and it is the seventh church, as we mentioned earlier, is the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. It is addressed in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. In verse 16, the Lord says, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. A hot drink that has cooled off, or a cold drink that has warmed up, is not very palatable. This church was not very palatable to the Lord. I pray that you are not a lukewarm Christian. Studying the Word of God is one of the most effective ways of keeping your zeal and fervency for the Lord. I pray that these studies in the book of Revelation will be used by the Lord to keep us close to Him. We've been listening to a classic Watchman on the Wall program, first aired in 1994. The book Pastor Larry was speaking about, No Uncertain Future, is available for you to order today. We also have available the complete set of five radio programs on three CDs. Order both the book and audio CDs today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can visit our website to place your order, swrc.com. 
And today, as a bonus, when you order the book, No Uncertain Future, and the three-CD set of radio broadcasts, we'll include a free book from the library of books written by Pastor Larry. Call today, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Back here in the present, Pastor Larry is right here and ready to answer another Bible question. Today's question has to do with replacement theology. Pastor Larry, what are the origins of replacement theology? Replacement theology is the view that the church is the new Israel. It is sometimes called supersessionism because national Israel is said to be superseded by the person and work of Christ in the new community of God's people, that is the church. We, of course, do not hold to replacement theology. But what are the origins of replacement theology? Well, there are several factors that contributed to the development of replacement theology in the early church. First of all, there was growing animosity in the early Christian community against Judaism. The Jewish religious leaders strongly opposed the teachings of Jesus, who seemed to be bent on exposing the Jewish religious leaders to ridicule. Furthermore, the teachings of the Apostle Paul on grace seemed to be a total repudiation of Judaism and everything associated with it. Two Jewish revolts, one in the first century and another in the second, in which Gentile armies savagely slaughtered Jews, seemed to indicate that God had turned away from his chosen people. It seemed as if he was establishing a new Israel, one that was not related to ethnic Israel. This provided Christian apologists with much ammunition to use against Israel and to claim that Jews were being punished for their rejection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there was a growing animosity in rabbinic Judaism to the early Christian community. The success of the early church in reaching both Jews and Gentiles and bringing them together caused dismay in the Jewish religious establishment. And the Apostle Paul championed the cause of Gentile freedom from circumcision and the observance of Jewish holy days. Devout Jews were finding it increasingly difficult to accept those who believed they had no obligation to observe the rituals on which many Jews put so much emphasis. And there was another factor that should be mentioned. Jewish Christians refused to take part in the two Jewish revolts against Rome, one in A.D. 66 through 73, and the later one in A.D. 132 through 135. Jewish nationalists looked on Christians with disdain. It was in this tumultuous environment that the allegorical method of interpreting Scripture became very appealing. Words were given a meaning other than what they literally signified. Israel could cleverly be understood as meaning the church, and God's promises to Israel could be understood as God's promises to the church. Once the allegorical method was applied to prophecy, literal Israel was cut out of the scripture. Don't forget to order today's special anniversary month offer, Dr. Larry Spargimino's study of Revelation entitled No Uncertain Future, and the complete set of five radio programs on three CDs. Order both the book and audio CDs today. And as a bonus, when you order the book No Uncertain Future and the three CD set of radio broadcasts, we'll include a free book from the library of books written by Pastor Larry. Call today, 1-800-652-1144. 
That's 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, Anniversary Month continues with another classic program, this time from David Weber. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Please visit swrc.com. Thank you.